Gavin came in one day and says, said, oh, you know, can you tell me all about MIDI? And I said, and I said oh, yeah, it's, um, and I knew he was somewhat technical, so I said, you know, it's 31.25 kilobaud, 8 bits, it's sort of a 5 milliamp current loop, da, 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 da. and he's like, why are you working in a music shop kind of thing? Like, and, and it was literally a, a life-changing kind of conversation because it did get me thinking, not because you know, I've got no qualms with retail or anything like that at all, but it, it just kind of made me think, well, I guess I do need to think about what I want to do long term and maybe this technical thing actually has a bit of, bit of legs to it. And... With me on the show today is Hugh Blemings. He was the former director of the Open Power Foundation and currently is still the host of the weekly Open Power virtual coffee session. Hugh has been around the Linux world for a while and I'll just let him talk. So Hugh, welcome to the program. Yeah, nice one, JT. Good to be here. Thanks. And all the time that we've talked over the past year or so, we've always focused on the technology. Mm. And obviously, we both love technology. That's that's why we do what we do. But I don't think I've ever heard you talk about how and why you ended up where you are today in life. Yeah. So that's what I wanted to kind of find out was what brought you to where you are? Like what initially when you were younger was the reason that you became interested in technology in the first place? Sure. Um. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I've I've often sort of given a really condensed version of that of sort of like I, I took a clock apart, a mechanical clock apart when I was eight years of old, eight years old and never quite recovered, kind of thing. And and I, I think there is actually an element of truth that I probably was about eight, and I think it was actually a clock. But it's kind of um, I guess just tinkering with stuff when I was really really young. That would have been the you know I suppose I'm invariably going to date myself somewhat here, but that would have been the mid to late seventies. I guess, and I was, I was fortunate okay. I had parents that were sort of supportive of, of both my, my sister and I sort of being inquisitive in nature and that kind of thing, so that was helpful. But yeah, so I grew up in kind of that golden age, I think, of ham radio and electronics, and um, it kind of went from went from there. I yeah, took things apart. I got in touch with a... I was living actually living in Victoria, where I am now, back then, but um, found a, a local ham radio operator that was happy to have this sort of slightly uh, spotty kid come and ask questions on a, on a Saturday morning while he talked to people all around the world and found that endlessly fascinating. And then it sort of progressed from there. So I sort of very much, a, for the most part, a self-taught kind of journey. I think um, lucky to have teachers, particularly in primary and uh, high, primary school and high school or junior junior high and uh, senior highs would be in the US, um, who were kind of, uh, kind of encouraging there. But pretty much self-taught, played around with microcontrollers a little bit when I was young because they seemed kind of interesting. Um, my parents bought a Commodore 4016, which was the kind of predecessor of the, the VIC-20 and the PET, uh, sorry, the VIC-20 and the Commodore 64, but it was it was um, 6502 base and had 16K memory. And um, yeah, I still remember to this day, just the amazing when we got 30, you know, got it upgraded to 32K by, it was actually like a local um, sort of techie who, who did it and actually Commodore kind of, back then actually drilled out with a, with a big drill, so it actually drill out the hole, so he couldn't do a civil simple upgrade, so he had to sort of rewire it. But that was that ended up being kind of good because I, I suppose my first programming language then was basic, but then um, had started sort of finding out about this whole assembler sort of thing, and I, I remember the joy of taking, <laughs> taking a 6502 um, sort of programming manual programming guide to high school that particular day and at lunchtime just sort of sitting in a corner and reading through it and finally working out how um what the index registers meant and sort of what I could then do with that and then going home that evening and sort of well afternoon and 
playing around with it and making that work. Had a, dear, a mate of mine who's a, who's a dear friend to this day who had an Apple II at the same time, so I was endlessly kind of uh, quite envious of him because he had cool graphics on, on his. <laughs> um, and it, yeah, I suppose it, I mean, that ended up being a really, really helpful start, I think, because uh, I was fortunate to start to deal with or learn, be learning in an era when the systems were just incredibly resource constrained, particularly by contemporary standards, but even then. So while I, I don't claim any deep gift at it, it gave an appreciation at least for efficiency encoding and that sort of, that's the thing. And because I'd come from a hardware perspective, it was kind of always fun to play hardware. I remember building a, um, the Commodores had a, a, a parallel port, like a user port, I think they called them then, mm -hmm. and which was just a simple 8-bit um, parallel bus. Did that beep come through to you, by the way? No. It did, but that's fine. It did. Um, I might need to think of a way to stop. So I apologise to your audience if we get the occasional. Actually, it tells me I've got an interview with you. Oh, it's well, that's good. Handy. There we go. So the system works. You're on time. We're Congratulations. On time. Thank you. Uh, might be the first time in my life. Um, but the... The Commodore was kind of interesting in a way because the, as I said, predated the Vic 20 and the Commodore 64, but someone did a design for a, a simple resistor digital DAC or digital analog converter that could hang off that parallel port, and people had written what these days we'd probably think of as, um, I can't think of, like chiptune-ish type things, but someone had okay. actually written some software for the Commodores back then all in assembler where you could download tunes and it would actually play two or three part harmonies through this simple DAC at I guess probably only eight kilohertz or something like that. But it was enough to really sort of pique my interest for the whole, well, this electronic music thing is kind of cool. And I think the one tune that I had that I really liked was the, was the song America, which I didn't know what it actually was, but it was just kind of this cool, cool tune. Um, I'm really glad you said digressions are okay. And that kind of piqued my interest in, in electronic music a bit as well. And then so that's where things kind of got a little weird at this stage. I'm in my late teens, just finishing year 11, year 12 at high school, I guess, senior, senior high. Mm -hmm. um, and I went to the local music shop and I said, hey, I want to you know, buy a keyboard to plug into my computer. And they kind of looked at me a little bit funny because this is in an era <laughs> when MIDI was only just starting to become a become a okay. thing and they they actually sent me away with a uh, an analog synthesizer um, which my parents kindly lent me some money to, to be able to buy and that sort of kicked off a, an interest in music which actually ended up being what I did really for the next few years I ended up working in that shop I, I remember that on the after I finished year 12 after I, I could have gone to either work for um, uh, one of the local photocopiers companies fixing faxes and that sort of thing or go and mm -hmm. um, work at the local music shop selling synthesizers, keyboards, and I went for the latter. And I'm ashamed to this day to say that that sort of I actually rang the uh, the company that I didn't take the job from the, the other place and said I'm not coming in, which of course is a terrible, terrible <laughs> thing to do, right? Like sort of horror. Um, but that was that ended up being an interesting sort of side journey as well because I got to be a part of uh, you know, selling keyboards. Um, that was the era where I guess the we were just transitioning from analog keyboards to Jupiter 6s, Jupiter 8s, things like that. So okay. um, the Yamaha DX7 had been released and just had astonished mm -hmm. the world. And so, and then um, the Roland D50 and the Korg M1, who were just these iconic or pivotal synths in the way, iconic in the way sort of digital music went, uh, went back then. 
And it was also the start of the era when sort of analog synths just became basically worthless because everyone wanted, everyone wanted the new shiny, which was these new digital right. synths. So we would trade sort of, you know, what are now just absolutely iconic, amazing analog synths in for five, you know, for I'll give you 200 bucks for that Oberheim or sort of, I literally bought mm -hmm. a, a Minimoog Model D in that era for $250. Kind wow. of thing. And, and you wouldn't buy one for less than five grand now, kind of. Again, I digress. Um, <laughs> but there's two things that was interesting, and this is, I suppose, the theme in all this, and kind of while I'm rambling is about it, was, it was very much a self-taught sort of journey, and working at music shop proved pivotal for many reasons, but one of which was um, a particularly poignant conversation I had with a with a customer who he worked around the, around the corner at this company that did network automation devices, real, quite mm -hmm. sophisticated stuff for its era, and. Um, Gavin came in one day and sort of said, "Oh, you know, can you tell me all about MIDI?" And I said, "And I said, oh, yeah, it's um, and I knew he was somewhat technical, so I said, you know, it's 31.25 kilobaud, eight bits. It's sort of a five milliamp current loop." Da, 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 da. And he's like, "Why are you working in the music shop?" Kind of thing, like, and and it was literally a, a life-changing kind of conversation because it did get me thinking. Mm -hmm. Not because you know I've got no qualms with retail or anything like that at all, but it it just kind of made me think. Well, I guess I do need to think about what I want to do long term, and maybe this technical thing actually has a bit of bit of legs to it. And kept chatting with Gav over the next few next few weeks, and he said, "Well, yeah, maybe you should look at a look at a bit of a change." And that led to a kind of a, a career path out of there to work for an office equipment company for a while, and then um, uh, and then worked for a small local electronics engineering firm, which is where I really started to cut my teeth on on okay. um, writing, building, pardon me, embedded systems and. Yes, uh, circuit board layout and schematic capture and manufacturing and also and had the um mm -hmm. the senior engineer there was a really talented analog engineer still is um we perhaps didn't always see eye to eye on on a few things back in the back in the day but but a nice fellow and, and very very you know one of the best analog engineers I think of that that era so it, we kind of ended up being quite a good duo because he could handle all the analog stuff really well and I sort of muddled through the the digital bits and the software pretty mm -hmm. well. Um, and then the, the other, back at the music shop, another one of the, one of the employees there is actually a very avid ham radio operator, and he he and I, you know, he really encouraged my interest in in ham radio back in the day, and uh, in fact we you know remain good friends to the to this day. He's been a, a very dear friend and mentor over the years as well, which has been great. So ham radio has been one of those things that's kind of come and gone. And it's a really it's actually a really great hobby in that regard, I think, because it is one of those things where the you can put it down for ten years and come back, and your basic radio still works just as well as it did. Right. Yeah, you know, we it's it's gone along in leaps and bounds since then with software-defined radio and all these other things. But um, but to circle back to the and um back to that earlier conversation about MIDI with the the guy from around the corner, the my next career step was probably the one that really kicked off the open source thing because that that Gavin, that same guy, had, had sort of moved on to another another company that did um was, was actually an offshoot of the Australian National University that does um did scientific instrument manufacture. And he said, well, "Why don't you come and come and work for us?" And I said, "Yeah, I'd be, you know, be delighted to." Um, it was quite you know quite a quite a change to be working for a larger firm and and um, they literally the instrument I worked on was an atomic force microscope, which was a fascinating bit of kit, but there were a couple of conversations that were sort of and people that were pivotal there, and not least of which was um, a chap named Tim who actually was involved with the Samba project for many years, and they ran a Linux box as the mail server for the office, and he was one that introduced me to this whole open source sort of thing, and I had you know, I'd stayed in touch with another friend that I'd met, Jeff, that I'd met through ham radio circles, and he gave me an account on one of the university computers that let me, let me sort of 
grab the um he downloaded the it wouldn't have been ISOs, it would have been whatever we use for floppy disks back then. I guess the raw images for yeah, the twenty floppies you needed yeah. for Slackware and I sort of spun up a Slackware machine at home and that kinda kinda went from there. And that was that, that was probably that was the start, I guess, of my sort of open source journey and I was very fortunate in that we use I became so one of the sysadmins for the local network at the at the scientific mm -hmm. instrumentation firm as well as doing my actual job which was sort of the electronics and firmware for some of the instrumentation and yeah I guess the kind of whole thing went from there we you know yeah and there's another another fellow who worked there who uh, sadly has passed has passed away but Mark was a a physicist by profession and he had this okay. fantastic book he introduced this amazing book which I've that's not on the shelves here, but um, numerical recipes in C, and it's this fantastic reference about sort of how to do quite complex maths in C back when in an era when you know, it was pre Python, pre a whole bunch mm -hmm. of stuff. Um, but that, but Mark was also just a you know, super super nice fellow, but also really encouraging for as someone who had a PhD in physics for goodness sake, encouraging me as someone who had not been to university basically at all, um, and yeah, that it's okay to be self-taught. I missed one little bit that's kind of important in there. When I was at the office equipment okay. company, they let me do um, enrol part-time in an electronics engineering degree at what's now University of Canberra was then. Mm -hmm. Actually, I think it was University of Canberra. And I wasn't really cut out for it. I didn't really apply myself. I always actually found maths quite, and calculus quite daunting. I think with the benefit of hindsight, I taught myself out of it probably as much as anything. But the one unit I did complete, which I'm enormously grateful for, was the Programming Systems 1A. I still remember. <laughs> probably <laughs> almost remember the class number. But I'm really glad I did that because having been self-taught with programming up to that point, it um, it taught you know taught about structured programming and all those sorts of things, which, of course, is you know, mm -hmm. integral to making making things to work from there. Um, yeah, and it kind of, you know, I guess the kind of the journey continued for their state at Australian Scientific Instruments as the company was for a few years. And then I think from there, yeah, had a company with, with, with a couple of friends. We sort of ran our own, um, yeah, we, we set up our own little sort of custom engineering shop. And as is often mm -hmm. the way with small companies, a lot, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of late nights, and you pay yourself a pittance kind of thing. But we right, made some yeah. interesting, interesting stuff. And then... Um, Somewhere in there, I got in touch with the, or became, kind of got in touch probably through Tim and some of the other guys on the Samba team, Andrew Tridgell, through the, with the um, Canberra Linux Users Group, and we get along to those uh -huh. those meetings pretty regularly. And I, I remember to this day, there's all sorts of happy memories from that early stages, but they they were run at, run monthly at the, out of this one of the spare rooms at the Australian National University's Computer Science Building. Uh, Bob Bob Edwards was, was one of the key key people along with Tridge. And um, that was sort of where my first exposure to the broader open source community. And I remember one day, one of the, I can't remember who it was, but someone walked into the, um, and just put a, a full stop and a slash on the whiteboard. And I was like, what's all that about? And this was the start of slash dot kind of thing. And mm -hmm. so and around then was the first Linux Australian Linux conference that Rusty Russell kicked off. And that was also around the time when um, Tridge and a few of the folk went to work for Linux Care. And, um, okay. I ended up so had the good fortune to work with them for a few years, and then it kind of went from kind of went from there. That's possibly a far far longer introduction than you actually had in mind. <laughs> you know, oh no, it's fantastic! It's, it's fantastic. It's um, but if I, I guess if I got a takeaway with any of that early stages, I guess I, I just count myself as being really lucky to have met some really nice and really smart people 
in those early mm-hmm. stages who were very encouraging and to in, in a way be part of that kind of golden era of golden era of open having sort of started in the golden era of era of experimentation ham radio and building kits at home and all that kind of thing mm-hmm. and then being lucky enough to be part of that sort of golden age of the pre.com open source year and actually get paid to work on free software, which was just, yeah. just been an amazing blessing the whole way along. Mm-hmm. That's actually been a pretty, pretty cool. And then it's sort of, yeah, from Linux care was IBM and canonical and, uh, worked for a network security firm in camp back in my hometown in Canberra for a few years, which was, which was a lot of fun, very interesting to sort of, work with a bunch of people who were professionals in proper cyber security and, and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And were at least as good as that as my, as the crew at Auslabs were about building kernels. And sort of one of my takeaways from that, that brief year in the cyber security side is just, is an appreciation for just how deeply in trouble we actually are. We're screwed basically, pardon my French. Um, but that was cool. And then sort of went to, um, Open Compute, then a few bits and pieces in at Rackspace, which was another mm-hmm. nice part of the journey, and then um, ended up at OpenPower, and that sort of, okay. and that was um, really, really fortunate to be a part of that for a for a good couple of years, and then um, yeah, just started a in a in the Linux team at um, at Amazon at, at AWS, which is which is this is my end of my fourth week actually, and that's been a, a really interesting journey as well. I will make the mandatory disclaimer that I speak for none of those organizations in, in the context right, of this conversation, yeah. da, 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 da. but <laughs> yeah. yeah. Opinions are yours only. Yeah. Opinions are mine only. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I could, uh, but no, it's been, and the, the, the open power thing in particular was, uh, is really, I mean, I've had so many, uh, so sort of lovely memories at all sorts of different points, but the open power one in particular and being able to accomplish along with the rest of the team, opening up the ICER and, you know, just seeing the fruits mm-hmm. of that really starting to shine now. I think we're we're probably just on twelve months since that announcement. Now I think about it because it was August August last year, and we've kind of gone from yeah. you know being the the Power Nine chip to IBM's just announced Power Ten, which is a cracker apart as a commercial thing. But we've got no less than three or uh, four open source implementations alongside that now. So one one is mm-hmm. a, is one that IBM. <laughs> Contributed the A2I core, and then you got MicroWatt, ChiselWatt, and LibreSock as the three com- you know community up right. uh, implementations as well. So being being able to now be part of this new generation of open ICES and open hardware going to that lower level is just mm-hmm. for someone who you know first goofed around with 6502s is is pretty is pretty cool too. Yeah, the IBM announcements at uh, Hot Chips for the new Power 10 was just like okay. This is an amazing system. This yeah. this is this is incredible. And I also noticed one of I don't know if it was one of the sponsors or not, but I forget what university is doing it. It might be Cambridge, but uh, it's all Risk Five stuff called Chip Chipyards. Oh, okay. I uh, I will throw a link to that in the show notes. Mm. Um, but it looked really interesting because it was like a, a. I mean, I'm not that versed in in the hardware side of things, but it seemed to be like a large community of people that were working on Risk Five yeah. that were kind of all like working together on different pieces here and there. Yeah. And like, obviously, as an open source software guy, I look at the hardware stuff and go, yeah, you guys should be open source too. I don't understand any of it. Mm. But I know there's people like you and others that do understand it. So it's just, it, I like the fact that, you know, we have the possibility now of having a full open stack yep. from Silicon all the way up. 
is, yeah. is just fantastic. It, it, it is, and I think it gives us so many opportunities. And I think I think the the RISC Five community are doing amazing stuff. We, we're fortunate with um, with the Open Power community. I think sort of a joy, really quite a collegiate work mm-hmm. relationship with them. I, I don't think we we you know we we see them as compet. We don't see them as competitors so much as colleagues. And sort of you know, right. yeah, yes, there's areas where we overlap and to, to be sure, but the really, if you stop and look at it, the thing that's different is the instruction set architecture. Everything mm-hmm. else is the same. And I think that right. gives us some really interesting, um, dare I say it, synergies <laughs> into the, the future where, you know, actually if we, you know, we can see a lot so closer collaboration because most of the, most of the other bits around the edge sort of, you don't need 50 million different Ethernet adapters. You don't need, or mm-hmm. the, you don't need 50 million different open Ethernet implementations. You don't need dozens of different memory controllers. You know, you can have a lot of that as being common building blocks. Mm-hmm. And I look at what um, people like the Ant Micro and the Chips Alliance and other people are doing. We, we, we're really rapidly getting those building blocks in place to sort of build that. And it's just going to be fantastic for choice. I, I really do think, and I don't say this lightly or out of a desire to be controversial, but I really do think that open core, open ICEs are the way, way forward. And I think we will mm-hmm. see the existing more proprietary architectures that we, we use in our laptops and we use in our telephones at the moment will start to become less important to the, the future. It's, it's, not a, it's not a stretch, I think, not to say it's trivial, but mm-hmm. I don't think it's a stretch to say in the same way that we, we've seen a, a pretty dramatic shift away from commercial Unix to, to open source and also commercial operating systems to open source operating systems and software stacks. And there's really mm-hmm. no reason why we shouldn't see that trend continue into hardware. And so the Arduino embedded maker community was kind of the start of that. And then people go, hang on, we can actually do this for chips. And you've got the, the great initiative. I um, haven't had enough coffee this morning. I can't remember the... Um, the shuttle service that Google and a couple other companies are putting together to allow people to do tape outs of what is it, uh, 40, 50 nanometer, not sort of absolutely bleeding mm-hmm. edge technology, but close enough to be definitely interesting. Um, yeah. That's going to be interesting. And yeah, there's all sorts, uh, it's, yeah, just a really, a really, really interesting frontier. And it'll be fun to see what people, people do with that. You, know, you look at, um, yeah, it's, that, that, that ability to do integration. And, and, and having said that, making chips is probably hard. Like it's, and I don't say that to be, you know, that's hardly a revolutionary thought. Building an operating system kernel is quite complicated kind of thing. So doing a, a, an advanced microprocessor design, yeah, that's another whole ball of wax in terms of the complexity and having right. had, having had the, the good fortune to work with and talk to processor designers at, at different points along the way in my career, you know, that they're super, super smart people mm-hmm. as well and in a different way to not better or worse it's a different way to what sort of uh, kernel developers to developers are they think about the same sort of low level considerations but the difference is you know having on the on the kernel side and even as a sort of one-time kernel contributor myself if you get it wrong you just change the change the, <laughs> that sentence and rebuild it and off you go right it's a lot lot harder to do with silicon when it's hundreds mm-hmm. of thousands or small numbers of millions of dollars of chips to, to retype out a part because you didn't quite quite get, get it right. right yeah but the nice thing about the it things being open is I mean I, I kind of make an analogy and it's not necessarily an accurate one but I think it's good enough for the concept is you know POSIX compliance allowed 
different people to work on different tools in an operating system and have different operating systems that could all work together because they all kind of agreed on yep. everything's in the open. You can see how it works. These are the kind of the things we're going to look for. And I think the same thing is, I hope, starting to happen in the open hardware space yep. where you have Risk Five and you have Open Power. And I'm sure there's probably one or two other ones out there that I'm just not aware of. But you have these that people can see. And there's obviously there's no reason that you can't take an Open Power chip and a Risk Five chip and build logic to then have them work together to, you know, perform some tasks just like yep. in unix we would use pipes you just take the output of one put it into the next it does the thing and it can kick back to another one and so i'm really encouraged that we're seeing that kind of large community collaboration that can come up in the hardware space i mean i again i'm this is all just greek to me but i look and i really enjoy seeing that yeah no i think i think you're right and i think i mean there's a couple of different things i i think you know, would it make sense to plonk a power power chip and a risk five chip on the same die? That's kind of harder to see, but in interesting because of sort of architecturally, it might not necessarily make a, a a ton of sense. However, the general theme is absolutely true, right? Like uh -huh. sort of you know you, you, that that's where you have that building blocks of common Ethernet controllers, common you know the UARTs are necessary but not very exciting interrupts of controllers are. You know, they may be a little bit more relevant in terms of that they're much more in the performance chain, but Ethernet adapters, things like that, you just really don't need a lot of different implementations. So there's a huge... Yeah, I didn't necessarily mean on the same die. Right, yeah. Okay. But I know one of the things like in, in, in Hot Chips was there's all the accelerator cards that everybody's making yeah. for all these different things. <laughs> yeah, you know? exactly. And eventually they all tie together and they all work together. Yep. Um, but it's not like you would have to have for necessarily a system where every chip is RISC-V or every chip is yep, open exactly. power. You know, you could have a mix of different architectures in a system that can work together and yet you still again have that full open stack available from hardware all the way up yeah and it's it's been really heartening because i think we're seeing those open tools coming about there's um uh, my brain's going to fade me again uh it's embarrassing because i read a tweet about it not, not this one there's a lot we i think the 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 most obvious area where a lot of that growth is happening is in the is the rapid development of very very credible FPGA tools. So to this entire synthesis pipelines for for doing FPGAs because that that's a sort of a good logical building block for to, to start with things. Um, Olaf Kingren is one is one name that comes to mind, and um, I can't think. I'll I'll get the name of it and you can chuck it in the in in the notes for later. But okay. he's done an amazing job of sort of bringing pulling together a, an entire tool chain that sort of lets you go from VHDL source to, to finished images for that can go into an FPGA and wherever possible using entirely open tools to do it or where those open tools aren't yet quite there being able to run the vendor specific or uh, commercial tools mm -hmm. in a way that's not kind of not horrible. My own view is that in sort of yeah, you know, large well-known FPGA vendors have over the years put a lot of effort and quite a lot of money into developing their their tool, their compilers and tools to optimize uh, placement and so forth on those chips. I think that will rapidly shift from them having been heavily proprietary and quite expensive tools to basically now nah, we'll, we'll just get behind the open source projects and have that same, you know, all, all, you know um, if the, the tide rises and all the boats rise, rise with it. Um, and it's really bugging me, I can't think of the name of the project. Anyway, I don't know. Um, so one of the things that it encourages me with the the openness that's happening, specifically, obviously, we're focusing more on hardware since I'm I'm interviewing you and you're the you're the hardware guy between the two of us. 
Heaven help but us. is that there's <laughs> back in the day, uh, there was definitely a measure of mentorship that would happen between different people. Mm. Um, like I know myself, I, I was tinkering, I was finding some things, but it was people who knew far more than me that were willing to actually kind of take me under their wing and pass that knowledge down. You know, you mentioned for yourself that there were people that kind of, you know, hey, you should you should come work on this, and they were able to pass knowledge along. That that kind of human element of that mentorship of transferring the information is something that nowadays seems to mostly happen online and with projects. Yep. And I've I've always kind of been worried that that's going to take away because there isn't that actual human connection that you have with somebody where you can sit down and, and you know hash something out but of course the the wonderful thing that the internet is it actually gives us that possibility to do that over extended distances and it's encouraging to see that type of thing happening in these open hardware spaces yep. where you have people coming in that they may know a lot but there's this other key thing that they don't know and they can be brought up to speed by somebody who's already there yeah on the lower level that most people would interact with, you know, I think makerspaces are fantastic for this. For you have somebody who, you know, they're interested in like one thing and they don't have the tools and it would be way too much for them to, you know, get everything to do stuff, but they can find another group of people that share that interest. And then through that, they can get involved, they can learn more. For, for me, that I think was one of the things that kept me the most interested yeah. was the fact that there were people that I, like, anytime I had a question, I knew that there was somebody I could go to who was willing to answer it. And that there was, they were actually interested in teaching me when I wanted to learn something. And user groups were, were a big thing um, in the U.S. Unfortunately, I didn't get to go to many previously uh, yeah. when I was younger. But were, was that something that, was, that has been active in, uh, in Australia? Is yeah. user groups? Was that big back in the day? It, big back in the day, a little less so... It, it, it's followed an interest, I think, an interesting trajectory in that the the, the traditional computer user group, the Apple II user group, or the PET user group, or or, or the P, and then the PC user group, as it you know more more as time went, they were huge here. Australia, we Australia's been quite fortunate, I think, in a lot of respects, in that we've we've by and large, particularly as I was going through school, we enjoyed a really really good education system. I think it's mm -hmm. you know that's a that's a that's an, another hour's conversation as to what. In, in its own right as to what's happened since but, but possibly not not dramatically different to the, the to, to the united states but um yeah i think the geographical isolation kind of has always imbibed a bit of a roll up your sleeves kind of attitude in australia and i'm not saying it's to be jingoistic it's you know I, 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 this is, you know our company's country's got all sorts of quirks and a very very grim history in a, a lot of areas but educationally has done pretty well the isolation has caused us to be quite self-reliant so those user groups and so forth as they were in the 80s and early 90s were really quite a hotbed of activity and innovation and, and i think generally pretty good i remember the one you know, piece of user group as it was in canberra you know that was a pretty good crew but when as once this open sourcing kicked off this whole linux malarkey and everything kind of came of that there'd been <laughs> there had been a separate quite vibrant Unix users groups and, and sysadmin groups and so forth that were quite and they sort of all kind of came together in in a lot of the um, when this whole Linux and open source thing kicked off and they they sort of picked up they sort of started to carry that mantle of mentoring around the technology in the open source space because I think the, the PC user groups sort of faded because actually computers got 
easier to use and there was less there was a perception of less of a need for them they mm-hmm. perhaps shifted from being the groups where you learn how to put together your XT and how to do all that really, really low level and actually quite complex and complicated and not very user friendly sort of stuff. The, the emphasis shifted for the user groups for being areas where you did that to being a user group that helped people who were less familiar with technology become comfortable with it. Both also an important, important role. But that, that sort of technological mentoring, yeah, so sort of shifted to the to the user groups and then um, I think increasingly sort of on online, but. Certainly, Australia, sort of uh, things like Linux Conf AU and uh, PyCon mm-hmm. and um, OSC, uh, OSCON, was, we, we did well and continue to do well in current situations, notwithstanding. Sort of, they were really the, the, the connection point each year where you'd, so we'd get together in January, our summer at Linux Conf AU or, or some, and some of the other conferences, and that's kind of where everyone got together and that filled up your tank for inspiration for kind of the, the year the year to come. And I, th- I think you're right, JT. I think a lot of that, that sort of that, that mentoring spirit is, by and large, fairly alive and well. I think we can do a lot a lot better than we can. I, you know, there's still gatekeeping and you know, biases against against different groups and whatnot, which I don't think are, are positive at all. But you know, we're getting slowly better, but not anywhere mm-hmm. we're, near, we're near where we need to be. But on the plus side of the ledger, so the, the broader, people are getting interest in science and things again, and that sort of hobby interest is kind of coming back. And, yeah. You know, and uh, in fact, it's back. It's, you know, I mean, it's not, yeah, it's, it's, it really kicked off 10, it feels like 10 years ago. The, that Arduino sort of era was, feels like kind of when it really kicked off in, mm-hmm. in earnest and people started getting interested in what was going on inside the box. Again, we've seen tremendous innovation, um, and yeah, yeah, innovation in a natural, you know, real sense of the word. So people, you know, like people mm-hmm. doing it. And the, I, I have a funny. There's for me, there's a bit of a, a funny sort of career, or well, not career, uh, technological arc there as well. In the sense that I, you know, I actually literally started off building kits, hand soldering things through whole components. I, you know, I tried to build my own computer out of a 6502 and a couple of bits of breadboard, and it did actually execute and fetch instructions. But that's as far as I got. And, Things, things like that, but then I got involved in the software side of it, like a lot of people, and no, and no one was really doing much hardware tinkering at home because it was quite hard to, it was perceived as being quite hard to do. And then um, I, I did actually do layout a surface mount circuit board for an Arduino-ish for a DMX lighting controller of all, uh, of all things, but I actually hand soldered that, and that sort of got, but that surface mount soldering went through this era of being this quite sort of ooh, complicated, you, you know, that's a it's an art, you know, it's, it's, you've got to have a steady hand and it's really, really hard to do. And it is compared to mm-hmm. the higher component pitch of through-hole components. But, and then you see people like Greg Davil and others on the internet who just, you know, make these things like the orange crab and things, these insanely so dense. Yeah. Board, and they hand-solder them, for goodness sake. I mean, and anyway, mm-hmm. not only are these people smart enough, they actually kind of put these high-speed design, you know, they've got DDR2 th- or 3 memory on them, they're like, you know, multi-meg, hundreds of megahertz of signal integrity to think about and all and then a hand solder the things awesome right so right you know people the the sort of you know i look at that and just say that's impossible and when i was a lad sort of the, you know 100 couple hundred <laughs> megahertz or gigahertz or something you used you know had high you know, very expensive equipment to test for made by you know, mm-hmm. packard or this guy and you right. wouldn't, you wouldn't even contemplate building something like that at home let alone constructing an entire bus anyway we'll very quickly end up in get off my lawn you darn kids techno- ter- territory so <laughs> but if I was trying to make a point at all, I think it's 
it's what's what's happened that's really interesting is because of the we've got to this we've gone through this arc now where there's a generation of people coming to technology or people like myself who kind of in a way kind of coming back to it because there's a few hardware projects I like to do I could actually do the entire design in KI CAD you know do a 3D rendering of it get the bill of materials go that send it off to an online production service and get 10 boards back assembled. So I don't even need to hand solder in which given right. my eyesight might actually be, <laughs> might, be <laughs> might be a blessing. But we, we went through this year of sort of, I think, yeah, well, you know, it's, not, it's hard to repair things, so it's hard to build things that are competitive with contemporary commercial electronics because it's hard to make things that small. To, nah, you can actually, you can outsource that to, an online service and you know might, might come mm -hmm. out of Shenzhen or you might have a local service to do it and there's no sort of kind of no barrier to that whereas there was, we just seem to go through a period where everyone stopped doing hardware because they were really much more interested in these computers and programming which is good that's what gave us Linux right maybe we're a start we're sort of a few years into a similar journey now for 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 open hardware which will go to the the chip level and the potential for us to yeah, you know, what we can accomplish there is pretty amazing. And then there's a third piece, which, and I, I'm extemporising a little bit. I think the whole openness piece, you know, you and I coming from open source backgrounds kind of understand this fairly intuitively, but I think the, there's increasing interest in the average technology user, what's happening to my data, and who's, mm -hmm. you know, sort of this is a, a fantastic free service, but why is it free? And some of those sort of contemplations. And I think that openness of the hardware stack and the software stack that runs with it, which for open architectures like RISC-V and OpenPower, we have a unique story that we can actually really go open all the way down to the extent mm -hmm. you can't with other commercial architectures. It'll be interesting to see, to think, what to shake, you know, what kind of comes out of that that you're already seeing interesting and quite attractive to use day-to-day -day Libre phones, for example. Mm -hmm. And that's just the start of that, that arc of technology to come from it and yeah, yeah it'll be interesting to see if if the openness continues into the service space where people aren't just you know concerned with you know okay yeah i have a phone it's it's open i understand the software but everything this phone is connected to i i want to know what's going on there too and i'm hoping that the kind of the general trend toward openness continues to get to get people to become more interested in that yeah, I, th I, th I think that I think that's true, and I think I think they will. I, I hope they will, and I think my perception of the of the companies involved in providing that infrastructure, be it telecommunications, cloud computing, or whatever, is there is a genuine awareness of a need to be working well in that space as well. Mm -hmm. And I'm slowing down slightly because I, I'm sort of choosing my words slightly carefully with that because I, I work for a company now that does does provide cloud services and has quite a lot of computers um, but it's interesting you know, I, I think the the big high, the hyperscalers are all to varying degrees but they are all thinking pretty seriously about this sort of openness and how does that kind of translate what does that mean in terms of hardware what hardware they use themselves internally mm -hmm. um, and how do we meet sort of customer customer expectations or end user expectations in the various different ways that that's a it is an interesting watch this space it's not one i feel as well qualified to kind of comment on because it's right kind of collects a little bit closer with work and also i'm sort of new so i'm still finding my way but certainly what i'm hearing so hearing seeing so far is really really encouraging and what i did see 
when I was at Open Power, where we, we had a number of our member companies were large hyperscales. Yeah, but I think people are thinking the kind of thinking the right um, the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems it seems to me that well, it doesn't just seem to me because it's it's been something that a lot of people comment on that it, humanity in general as humans we seem to always go through cycles. Oh yeah. Um, and yeah. like when when electronics first started. I mean, pretty much everything was open design. You could just pop the yep. plastic cover off of something, look at it, and go, oh, that's how that works. I can do that. And mm-hmm. then they did that. And you know, that continued for a long time, and then software came along. And I know when I first started to learn software, it was actually with reading manuals about BASIC on Atari. And I didn't yep. really understand what was going on, but I was typing it in, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I did, I did that thing. Yep. Basically, all I did was type it. But, you know, at the time, I was young, so I, I did this thing. But the software was all open. And then we went through this phase where everything got closed back down, and the software seemed to be the first thing that started to really get that push to open it back up. Yeah. And like you said, you know, it, there was this perception that the hardware got to the point where it was too hard or too complex, and then there wasn't as much of a push. But I'm really encouraged to see people getting back into that that interest in that. And I think, you know, the Arduinos and the Raspberry Pis really helped open that back up again. To show people hardware isn't scary it's not i mean it is complex but it's not impossible to understand no no it, it, it is interesting i mean i think i think software was the vanguard for a lot of the uh, open source software became the vanguard for that opening of tinkering at home because it was it was just easy to do you just had it you know you just grabbed a compiler or you you grabbed your old computer and you whacked debian on it or um or uh oh, slackware or whatever kind of kind of mm-hmm. thing and, and you could or or you know, Turbo Basic or Turbo C or whatever it was, sort of depending on what, what area you're dealing with. And software had that beautiful malleability and I guess kind of um, instant gratification kind of angle. Once the compilation was done, you could see whether it worked and the, the screen changed mm-hmm. colors or it printed the pretty graphic or you got Hello right. World or whatever, whatever it was. And the hardware, what Arduino, I think, is what probably the, the most visible, but certainly not the only example at early stage that the hello world there was blinking the lead in the first time. I, re- I remember sort of my, my mm-hmm. daughter, who's a very smart individual for, and an interest in technology, but only as a tool, not really as a means to itself. But first time, I, I think I had a, like a basic stamp and I showed her how to program it, mm-hmm. write a simple basic program that blinked two LEDs. And, it's, and that, that sort of ability to interact with the physical world does just have a different sort of a, a field to it, and I think the I think the other thing that Arduino's and and, and their ilk really did do was um, co- just commoditize it. They made it a little easier. You didn't really need to understand how to build power supply electronics. You didn't need to do a bunch of that sort right. of stuff. And I don't see any of this in a pejorative way. And, I, and I'm I'm just I'm dismayed when I see still to this day sort of oh using an Arduino that's not real engineering. It's like seriously, like. <laughs> yeah, it, a, that's bollocks, and B, does it actually matter anyway? Someone's having a go. I digress. Right. I won't. I definitely won't get on a soapbox. We'll never get done. Um, <laughs> but, but that's sort of the, the Arduino sort of made, meant that you could start doing some basic stuff with um, electronics and not ha- not really mm-hmm. have need to have it necessarily have a deep understanding of what was going on there. I, I worked with a with a dear friend, um, John Oxer, on uh, a book about Arduinos. John John did the lion's share of it, but the, the bits I contributed were it was actually a chapter on the chapter on sort of electronics for software people. And that was kind of an interesting thing to write. And I'm not saying this to be a plug or to be sort of big note or anything like that, but it was really interesting. It was an interesting process to think about what, you know, what are the key things you need to tell 
a software person about hardware in order to give them what they need, but not too much more, know where to look and, and to do it safely. Because and, and safe can mean a couple of different things there, sort of explain to someone why current is important so you don't burn a, a lead out. Okay, well, mm -hmm. that, you know, that just makes an, an horrible smell and that's about the end of it. But how, how do you sort of pitch it right in terms of um, not sort of, you know, mains electricity will actually kill you. It's dangerous if you want to right. actually turn real-world devices on that are mains-powered, then you really do need to and, and be able to present that in a non-condescending way and in a way that would, mm -hmm. to an intelligent person, will just get them to pause long enough to go, yeah, okay. Maybe I need to <laughs> find a friend on this one sort of, sort, right. of, sort of thing a little bit. Yeah. One of the other things is software is definitely cheaper to screw up. Absolutely. You know, you're working on that program and you do it wrong. It's, ah, well, okay, I'll just uh, go change that and you're back. Yep. Whereas, uh, you know, hardware, you do something wrong and, well, now you're at square one. Often, when I was yeah. younger, a, a friend of mine uh, had a little RC car from yep. Radio Shack. Cool. And yep. he, he, he thought up this great idea to make it faster. And so he went in with like a paper clip and like tried to connect some some points on it. And well, he ended up burning something out so that it would it would only turn right. <laughs> right. And so needless to say, it was gone then. He didn't know how to fix it. I didn't yeah, know how to fix yeah, it. Yeah. So like he had it for a while and then eventually he was going to throw it out. And I was like, you know what? Just give it to me. One of these days, I'll, I'll see what I can figure out. And it was probably a year after that. I was like, okay, let me see if I can fix it. Well, whatever I did, actually, now it doesn't go either direction. It, it only goes straight. So I, I've just found it in a box the other week. Yeah. And it's like, I need to, I mean, this is not complex stuff. Like at this point, I should be smart enough to figure this out with help to make this thing work again. But, you know, you get something wrong on hardware and it can definitely hurt. Whereas on the software side, you know, it's, it's a lot easier. And which, which brings me back to something you started off with when you said you were younger and Actually, you were taking so, clocks sorry, apart. Sorry, JT, do you, mind, do you mind just, I think they've got the doorbell. Do you mind just pausing? No, for no, go seconds? ahead. Sorry, wait a second. Yep, go for it. No problem. So sorry, you were saying. Yeah, so I was saying one of the, that that brings me back to one of the things that you started off with, which was you said when you were younger you used to take clocks apart. Mm. Um, now when I was younger, I tried to take everything apart I could possibly take apart. Yep. And much to my parents' dismay, I also never bothered to put it back together. So <laughs> yeah. uh, that was my question to you: was did you ever try to reassemble things, or was it just I want to know how it works? Okay, it's apart now. I know how it works. I'm done. Um, I think a little column A, a little column of B. Um, that would be an interesting okay. question from my mum, I guess, too, probably. But uh, um, no, I think yeah, I think most of the times we've got stuff back together. Definitely not perfectly. And, and I think particularly when I was younger, there's, you know, I, I disassembled a few things and, and did wreck them, and that was unfortunate because they were maybe not sort of hugely, hugely valuable or they'd probably not been, I'd probably not been allowed to tinker with them in the first place. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of... Yeah, mostly mostly got things back together. Um, 
I think there are, I think that's an era where, or a stage where you acquire good skills and you try to be a little bit methodical about sort of, mm-hmm. you know, keeping the screws in order and sort of, you know, marking yeah. where, where, where the long ones go and where the short ones go and that kind of, kind of thing, perhaps. Um, yeah, my parents finally drilled that into me, and after I after I disassembled enough things and didn't get them back together, yeah, they're like, okay, if you're gonna take something apart, you have to be able to put it back together again. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, I think, I think, I dare say, similar conversations were held in the, <laughs> in, our, in, our, in our household at that at that same at that same point or same sort of same sort of stage. Um, something else I just kept just uh, just I was talking to the the, the courier, but um, and a shout out to the to the Australian post office that still continues to function. And we're we're in complete lockdown here in Melbourne at the moment where I am, so we we basically can't get out at the moment. Anyway, so it's uh, it's interesting times. Um, but one of the things I, I think reflecting on my own my own journey, sort of you know professionally, and I've been really lucky in that I did actually turn sort of what was a hobby interest into a into a, an, an agreeable and I don't know, success is always a, a complex topic, but certainly it's, it's worked out well, a good career. Um, mm-hmm. But it's actually the people, like, I mean, and I, I know I'm not trying to say that to be sort of overly wholesome or anything like that, but I, I, I think one of the most wonderful things about the technical journey I've been on and and, 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 and open source has been really a huge part of that for, crikey, um, 20 years now um mm-hmm. it's just you end up working with some really really nice people and having been fortunate i've been fortunate enough to be able to go to conferences both here in australia and abroad and just these wonderful friendships that have come from that that, that continue to this day and i mean you know i guess we've we sort of connected through the the, the coffee calls sort of the and and i guess through through noah's show earlier and so forth as well and so but for, for the most part in, in our open source community or in that broader open technical kind of commons, most people most people are pretty nice. Not you know we've got mm-hmm. some quirky ones, um, but yeah, some pretty pretty nice friendships that kind of kind of come out of that. And um, this I was, I was reflecting in going to be moving house in in about a month's time to to, to outside Melbourne. I've definitely got friends here in Melbourne, and I will miss the convenience of being able to just pop over and see them. But most of my friends right. are dare I say it online sort of thing or, or you know, back in Canberra where where I grew out mm-hmm. but but the people I interact with day to day are often you know colleagues through open you know open power or now through um through AWS and uh, even going to work for, for Amazon there's people there that I've known for 20 years <laughs> it's just yeah. this wonderful kind of kind of homecoming and and that and then when you do meet it and now I think that's been the big change this year, and it's a ties in a little bit with what you were saying about that in-person sort of mentorship. That's obviously been harder for us to do, but we've, haven't, haven't mm-hmm. we just seen this fantastic explosion of blogs and video things and people putting to putting mm-hmm. effort into recording how to do stuff so that people can kind of continue that thing at home, and then at a at a non-technical level, just that's a greater connective connectedness with your neighbourhood, and so there's yeah, I think the through those particular trials, we've we've had some good things there. But so within the open source community or that broader open technical commons, just I've, I've I'm just so thankful for the the wonderful friendships that have kind of come come from that and uh, pe- people you'd never got to meet and sort of and and particularly I think for me the checkpoint the key points always been um, the Australian Linux Conference or Linux Conf a year. This will be the first year twenty 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 one will be the first one first time we've not had an mm-hmm. in person one for. 
20 plus years but that sort of a, that was an annual such an integral part of my own personal journey as well as you know oh, i get to bump into sue or fred or john or dave or yeah. whatever and you know have a bit of a yak and it's uh yeah it's uh it really does sustain you in a lot of ways and it's i think our open technical commons is kind of interesting too in that it's i've got friends who got quite a few friends who are musicians and of all different sort of levels of, of uh, I, I just tinker on piano and you know played in a few bands mm -hmm. for fun and that's been a, a wonderful journey in its own right and could be another call in its <laughs> in its entirety <laughs> but um the artistic yeah i think the open our sort of open technical commons is a lot like the broader artistic community where there's a lot of natural collaboration and camaraderie mm -hmm. and so forth and we don't always get it right i think yeah and we've definitely got a ways to go in some areas but um yeah, it's. I think the thing that's been given, the thing that's given me the most wonderful memories have been the people, not the, yeah, not, yeah. not what ship it was or whatever else kind of kind of thing. So. Yeah, that's why I wanted to start this show was because, you know, all the shows that I've worked on before in the past, Linux Action Show, uh, Linux Unplugged, the Ask Noah Show, BSD Now, we all focus on the technology, mm. and obviously we all love technology. That's why we're here. Yep. But there's that human element that we like. We know it's there, but we don't focus on it as much mm. and for me i love going to linux conferences to actually be able to sit down with the people and yeah. get to know them yeah because we're such a fascinating bunch we're we're all so very different but yet at the same time kind of very similar in other ways mm. and it's really interesting to be able to sit down with somebody that you share you know a passion for a software project or, or whatever and have a conversation with them and then as you get to know them you're like this person has similar ideas and, and feelings about this thing and this thing but then they're just there's so much of a different person in their daily life and you know where they live and what they yeah. deal with and it it really helps kind of open your eyes up to how vast everything in the world really is mm. and how as much as we're all different we're all very similar yes i've always loved being able to go to the conferences and you know like you said it's like oh okay i'm going to this conference so i know that when I go there, I'm going to bump into Jeff or I'm going to see Steve. We're going to be able to sit down and have a conversation. And like we can talk, you know, we talk online all during the year, but actually being able to sit down with them and do something together, mm. like at Southeast Linux Fest, uh, obviously there's the conference, but then there's a whole bunch of other things that go on as well. Like we have yeah. one evening that's just a craft beer share. So everybody awesome. that comes from around the country brings like their local brew and we all sit around and try, you know, each other's local brews and have a good conversation. Yeah. Um, there's a big barbecue. In the typical American fashion, there's a there's a group that goes to the gun range to fire some guns. <laughs> yep, yep. So it's like, you know, all these fun things that it's people have have got to the point where, yeah, it's a conference. Yeah, it's technically work, but it's also kind of like their vacation because I get to go hang out with all the people that I love spending time with. Yeah. And my work is going to pay me to do it too. Like this is a win-win scenario. Yeah. No, I, I I quite agree. I mean, I think it's. Yeah, it's just we you know it, it, we're incredibly fortunate, you know, if if work's covering the cost, but it's the sort of thing you know, I've with Linux Conf AU is probably a good example, I guess, actually, as I think about it. I think most of them, my my then employer has paid for a couple of times I've spoken, so mm -hmm. didn't matter. And I think once or twice I paid myself, but I'm just so lucky for having having had that. But the um the other thing is just so you know, I think it's really nice about it too is it sort of a lot of the connections and friendships that have come from those early days in the free software community and as such that you you see fairly you know um 
these are people who've known for 20, in some cases for me, 20 years. So sort of, I remember I met them when their kids were little and their kids are at university or college now or mm. getting married or whatever. And you, know, you see you see this wonderful sort of um, human, art, human arc progress. Yeah. Um, as well, and you know, sometimes, unfortunately, you know, that can have a very melancholy. You know, we've we've lost members of our community mm-hmm. along the way, and they're no longer with us, and that's 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 heart wrenching in its way. Or we, or there's a bereavement in the family, or whatever. Yeah, you know, there's not to say it's all wine and roses, but it, it you know, there the really is a, a a true sort of lived connection that comes with um with knowing people for that length of time. Yeah, I would recommend to anybody who hasn't gone to a conference or you know to a lug or something like that to a user group. To definitely get out and go to one and actually meet the people. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's it's amazing sometimes the people you'll meet that you didn't think you would meet. Like, yep. I was an old Slackware guy, and I was actually a Slackware guy because someone gave me a Slackware box. Right. Yep. So like, I didn't choose it; it was it was given to me, and that's that's the Linux box it, that it, I had it, to it use. You chose UJT. Yeah, <laughs> right. Right. That's a funny story I'll have to tell you about later at some point. Yeah. But anyway, you know, so I was in the Slackware communities on IRC and things like that, and I talked to people, and then many many years later. When I happened to be at Self, not even thinking, you know, I bumped into the people that I spoke with online awesome. 10, 15 years prior that I didn't know. Like, I didn't ever think I would meet that person. Mm. And then, oh, I, you helped me with a networking issue 15 <laughs> years ago. And they're like, awesome. yeah. uh, did I? Like, yes. Right. And I really appreciated it. And now I can tell you that I appreciate it. Yeah. And like other people that it's like, you know, I have talked to you for, for quite a while. I... Like, I didn't know who you were. Now I've met you. We've talked for a long time. One of the mm. people that used to live really close to me before I moved uh, in 2018, Jason Plum, is one of the core developers of Arch Linux Farm. We had met at Southeast Linux Fest, and we had talked yeah. for, like, a year or two about, wow, we should get together sometime, because I knew he was sort of in the area, but I didn't know exactly where. Yeah. Turns out he was 20 miles from me the whole time. And then it's like, we finally realized that, and I was like, okay, every month we're going to get together for lunch, guaranteed, because how can we not? You're this close. Yep. No, that's that's what. No, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, I'll 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 pick two things. I'll pick up on there. So I think that that's always a bit of a funny thing with the with the conferences too. If you know, um, often you end up meeting people who live, you know, hundred to ten k away or in the same town as Mm -hmm. you. You only ever meet them in, you know, Budapest or whatever. Like. Super privileged problem. How not? not <laughs> but um, but no. To, but to your earlier point, JT, I think um, that encouraging people to get along to to their local locals or the user groups. I I couldn't agree more. I mean, I um, and I've been struck with that a number of times. And in, in that, when I particularly when I was a high school, you know, no great surprise. I was kind of the quintessential, slightly nerdy, socially awkward sort of kid. And it's, it's got that's got a little better over the years. And I, I think fairly comfortable in socially and that sort of thing in, mm-hmm. in, in the main but i definitely need my, my quiet time but one of the things that i think imperfectly but we do generally do a fairly good job of in the in the community is sort of just just having that space for people to be be themselves and you know the, the, the inclusiveness and so forth you know it, it's it's not it's not a destination it's an ongoing mm-hmm. thing we need to to work on but but yeah you get along to the user groups and you know i've been to user group meetings in taipei and sort of all around you know Budapest and all around, all around the world, and it's that same thing. Like everyone just has that same sort of. Oh, we we we're brought together by the technology. We don't really mind terribly much what the rest of it's about. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, so I don't want to diminish the fact that we've still got work to do on that all the time. But well, we're all human, so there's always going to be right. so there's always going to be progress that yeah. needs to be made. Yeah, 
definitely but it's um but yeah the, the, you know you, there's that common bond of the technology often transcends the mm -hmm. transcends some of the, that initial awkwardness i guess so one question this is a, a definite throwback to the beginning of the conversation and it's kind of just been lingering in the back of my head yeah, sure. um, you said that your the first computer that your family had was a commodore um yep. so my question is was it a square one or was it one of the trapezoidal ones uh it's a trapezoidal one so it was okay. a nine inch screen um yeah nine and which I remember being a bit a little bummed about because I think if I remember the arc of that the product range the the one the nine inch that we had um, the, the 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 bigger screen ones were actually sort of the slightly later generation and I think they mm -hmm. can be modified to maybe to do eighty columns or something something like that or that that maybe that because they were slightly later rev of the hardware you could do do a few more things with them I did have one one funny moment with that just thinking back to it. The anyone who's familiar with Commodores would remember, but that's probably about two percent of the listener base, if, if even that nowadays. But the um, the Commodores 4016, 4032s, the the pets that sort of era, they didn't have graphics capability at all. Really, they had they had a, just a char simple character generator on, which happened to have some graphics characters, so that was the extent of it. Mm -hmm. But you could poke a particular, you could flip a bit at a particular memory location, and it would switch the graphics character set out and replace it with lowercase alphabet instead so, so you did poke 5.468,12 and I think you got graphics of 5.468,14 and you mm -hmm. got um, it's actually kind of sad that I remember that in some <laughs> respects but whatever anyway but what what was happening behind the scenes there was um, uh, there was a bit you know, what was a, a control bit that was flipping a high a high address bit on the character generator ROM to switch in mm -hmm. the particular thing. Anyway, cut a long story short, I worked out that sort of if I I could build some logic that would um, plug into the character generator ROM instead, so that in so that it was normally in when it was in default mode, nothing was different. But when it was in the other mode, it, instead of the character generator ROM being switched in, it would actually t it would take the eight bits that were coming out of the, the screen memory and turn that into I think a two by four bitmap. Okay. I think I think it was that it was either four by two or two by four. I think it was two, but just by some some fairly simple mm -hmm. logic. So I actually built that up, and you plugged it in the character, sort of slotted into the character generator ROM socket, and went off to some particular point on the port board to get power and one other signal. I think I decided I needed, um, and the character generator ROM sat in top. So most of the time it looked normal. I'd moved out of home, maybe, possibly, no, maybe not. Anyway, but we sold the computer, or we put the computer on. In the classifieds, so I was going to say eBay. It was definitely not eBay. Um, so someone someone came along who wanted to buy it because they wanted to use it as a word processor, and they put the word processing software, and that that, that flipped to lowercase mode, and instead my little ROM board kicked in, mm -hmm. or my little modification kicked in, and uh, and they and my, my folks would just draw it because like there's something wrong with the computer, and then they I think maybe I was asleep or whatever, but I. Like they got me involved. Oh, I know what that is. And sort of to the mild horror of the, the potential purchase, you know, I switched it off, took the lid off, pulled out my little <laughs> circuit board, plugged it back in, you know, put everything back together. And there, there they were kind of thing. And it was, um, and they bought it. So I guess it, I guess it mm -hmm. kind of worked out. But the thing that was, whenever I think back to that, it was kind of funny. It's like, I don't remember being that smart with hardware at that age, but evidently I wasn't. I'm not saying that in a, to you know, kind of big note or anything like that, but mm -hmm. just simply that you forget 
you, you forget some of the stuff you do and you don't and back you know I, i'm sure i wrote it down at some point i must have but i've lost it and yeah. that's um that's one of my few regrets of those early days is that i didn't kind of keep more permanent records more you know so mm -hmm. I, I did actually do some reasonably cool hacks in in with the benefit of retrospect but didn't write them down i was too busy being a teenager and then right nothing. yeah playing in rock and roll bands and whatever, <laughs> whatever else. Yeah, so the first the first system that my family had was uh it was an Atari XL. Oh nice. So it was yeah. just the it was just the box uh, with the keyboard. Yeah. But I always remember even though the the Commodores were older, I always remembered that I thought the trapezoidal shape was really cool. Oh, okay. Because yeah, we yeah, just yeah. had a square a square monitor, I forget what type it was that plugged into the the Atari base. But uh yeah. I had a friend whose their family had a, a pet and I just remember thinking the thing was so cool. Like even though technically I had the superior graphics capability and the superior processing yeah. capability and all that, it was that's like the trapezoidal shape was just iconic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, but I think I think of that. You know, when you when you're that age, I think the aesthetic is kind of the important. You know, how cool it looks mm -hmm. is still pretty. I mean, you know, for me, I'm still awe inspired by aviation, by rockets. Like you know, I will stop and watch an aircraft take off or land, or you know, rocketry. Right. Rocketry is still just to me this amazing amazing thing so i think that sort of those childhood sort of or and yeah yeah it's the shape of the you know shape of the computer case or whatever I, I have this vague recollection that the thing i really liked about electronics when i was really really young you know six seven eight whatever it was just how cool circuit boards looked chips looked mm -hmm. i have this vague recollection of sort of doing something like i ordered a printed circuit board for a particular kit from one of the local electronics magazines and it's something like, like I, did, I wasn't actually particularly interested in building the device, or maybe I got it at a flea market or something like that. But I just wanted, I, I, but then I went to buy chips, and my primary consideration was that the chips had the right number of pins to fit in the board. So I just wanted to be able to solder it up and have this cool looking circuit board. I wasn't actually worried about whether it would function <laughs> or not, but just like, what, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> Sort of thing, but uh, yeah, and I think I think to the point where I vaguely remember going probably into into Melbourne City as it was then to one of the electronic shops and mm -hmm. the salesperson being a little bit bewildered why this kid was worried about <laughs> the number of pins on the part, not whether it was a particular the right seven four series series chip. But yeah, that's going anyway, that's going back away. That's over forty two years ago, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so, specifics are gone. Yeah. Well, obviously the world has has moved on. Things have progressed. Mm. But if you if you were talking to somebody who wanted to get involved in technology or wanted to, whether it be hardware or software, yeah. what would be the key points of advice that you would give them as far as not necessarily career advice, but just like personal mm. advice for moving forward in that as a, as I don't want to say lifestyle, but I, I don't really know how else to explain it. If you, do you understand what yeah. I'm, what I'm getting at? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I mean my major reaction is run, run, save yourself. It's, <laughs> but no, nah, it's um, no, have it, have a go at it. Don't, yeah, I, yeah, stay, be curious about it. Read. Don't get caught up on, and I, yeah, I'll finish. Don't get caught up on whether you're self-taught, you have a degree, or whatever. Um, what your background is. It's I think so much of it is about aptitude. Is about having. Um, it's less about aptitude; it's about attitude in terms of a willingness to actually have mm -hmm. a go at it and dig in and find people to, you know, ideally, find people to connect with to tinker with it. But it, it really is a a new golden era, I think, in a lot of ways of the, the, the sheer volume of resources available, whether it's through your local library or your computer at home, is amazing. I would, 
and, and yeah, have, I'd probably, I think even for someone who's really interested in hardware, if you don't already have a bit of a programming background, just play around with Python or one of the higher, higher level languages that are pretty easy to start with just to, to dip your toes in mm-hmm. that particular ocean. But yeah, have a crack at hardware it's, um, and start with an Arduino or Raspberry Pi or, uh, or whatever. But yeah, just overall, just kind of stay curious, I think, and don't, don't be worried about breaking anything. I think because yes, there is that there is that capacity to brick the hardware or mm-hmm. reformat the hard drive on your computer or whatever. But in general, the tutorials or anything you might follow online point those those sort of problems out pretty well. But um, but no, just just jump into it. It's not. It's there is too, there's still I think a bit too much gatekeeping in our in the technology commons as a whole less so i think maybe in just general open source and you know like the python community i think do a fantastic job of mm-hmm. being really welcoming and other communities to very you know do better and worse kind of or may, maybe not many do better actually i think but you know there's certainly a few that probably still got got some ways to go but uh, but yeah just sort of jump into it and have a have a bit of a bit of a go and don't if people say to you, you know, no, you can't, or no, you're not welcome, or we'll just find a different set of people to talk to, because you are definitely welcome and you are definitely capable. And if you now don't immediately expect to be designing microprocessor internals from <laughs> from day one, because that's actually quite a complicated thing to do. It's not beyond your ability by any stretch, but it will. But there is, uh, particularly the most fundamental physics gets in the way of some of it, but there's some there's some base, there's some low the, the low level sort of details are are really really important. But there's there's a huge swath of things that interesting things you can do where you don't need sort of deep architectural knowledge. And when you find you start wanting that, you'll find there's plenty of rabbit holes to go down and kind of go from there. But no, I mean. I'd, I'd never give anyone advice. Pretend to give anyone <laughs> advice, but yeah, just give it a shot. You'll be pleasantly, pleasantly surprised. And and I think actually to, to one of your earlier observations, JT, just find that local user group. And if you feel welcome there, awesome. If you don't find another one, and if you can't find mm-hmm. one locally, then find something online, and you'll you'll find find kindred spirits somewhere pretty pretty readily. I think. All right. Well, thank you. That sounds like a great spot to uh, to wrap things up. Yeah, sure. Uh, Hugh. Thank you for taking the time um, to talk to me. I I greatly enjoyed it, yeah, like and I hope everyone else will as well. Yeah. And you know, hey, maybe we'll do it again in the future and, and run down some of those other rabbit holes that we that we touched yeah, on. Yeah, be, be, be happy to. Thanks thanks for the opportunity, JT, and uh, and to uh, anyone anyone listening. Thanks uh, thanks for taking the time out of your time day to listen along as well. Cheers.